Good afternoon, everyone. Well, I, I look out in the crowd and I see a lot of golf shirts. So I know it's hot outside, and I am delighted that you uh, made your way into the conditioned coolness that is the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. Welcome to this installment of the Banner Lecture series at uh, the VHS. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Historical Society. And as always, I'd like to start by thanking the Richmond Times Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And on occasion, if you've come to these over the years, you know that we also occasionally have co-sponsors. And this, uh, this lecture is uh, one of those times, and I'm very, very pleased that um, for the, uh, I don't know how many years in a row now, the uh, Society of Colonial Wars in the state of Virginia has been our partner on some of the banner lectures. And I hope you will join me in a round of applause for the Society for their sponsorship. We have some representatives down here in the front. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We, uh, we really value your partnership on these lectures. Uh, before we proceed with today's program, let me remind you of a few things coming up on the calendar. Our next banner lecture will take place here at noon on Thursday, June 12th. That day, Kevin Duffus will deliver a uh, talk entitled War Zone, World War II off the North Carolina coast seemed like a good summer topic as you are potentially going to spend time on the beach in North Carolina. You might imagine that some uh, decades ago you might have seen something very different off that coast than you do today. So that is June 12th, uh, the next Banner Lecture. Our next VHS bus trip is a very special one. It will take place on Friday, June 6th. So that date rings a bell. Any guesses where we're going on Friday, June 6th? Bedford, there you go. Uh, we will take a bus trip up to the National D-Day Memorial in Bedford to witness the 70th anniversary commemoration that they will be doing up there. So you uh, really may want to join us for what should be a very special, a very special trip. Our next behind-the-scenes tour will take place on Saturday, May 31st, which is a week from this Saturday, at 10.30 in the morning. Chris Van Tassel, who is our program's coordinator and a tour guide extraordinaire will lead a tour behind the scenes and right now behind the scenes is is really what you get to see because a lot of the you know the galleries are closed so this is an opportunity to see some treasures the tour is called round robin social networking before facebook which is a little clever play on words but uh, you'll see some really really interesting things if you come join us on the 31st and as always you can find information about any of these upcoming lectures, bus trips, tours, classes, and other special events on our website, vahistorical.org, or you can pick up information or sign up at the museum shop on your way out today. Now, finally, if you have a cell phone, please take it out and turn it off, turn it to silent, crush it under your boot heel, whatever you need to do <laughs> to keep it from interrupting us. Have it turn off uh, while I'm talking, not while our speaker is, is talking. The loss of America was an unexpected defeat for the British Empire. Common wisdom has held for many years that incompetent military commanders and political leaders must have been to blame. Weaving together the personal stories of 10 prominent men who directed the British dimension of the war, today's speaker dispels the incompetence myth and uncovers the real reasons that rebellious colonials were able to achieve 
their rather surprising victory. British victories were frequent throughout the war, after all, and yet roiling political complexities at home, combined with the fervency of the fighting Americans, proved fatal to the British war effort. Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy received his degrees from uh, Oriel College at Oxford. He is the Saunders Director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello and Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Before coming to Charlottesville, he was a Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. He is the, article, uh, the author of numerous articles excuse me, on the American Revolution and the author of two books, An Empire Divided, the American Revolution and the British Caribbean, and The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire. And I must say, being uh, on the brink of delivering a banner lecture seems to be a very good luck charm these days. You might remember that uh, right before his talk a few weeks ago, Alan Taylor got news that he had won the Pulitzer Prize. Well, on Tuesday, to go along with his New York Historical Society Prize that he had already picked up, Dr. O'Shaughnessy on Tuesday received the George Washington Book Prize from Washington College, which has become one of the most coveted awards in our field. So I guess the lesson is, if you want to win the lottery, <laughs> come see me about getting on the Banner Lecture calendar. Anyhow, please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Andrew O'Shaughnessy. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, when I received the award on Tuesday uh, evening and standing in front of Mount Vernon, uh, looking over the Potomac River on a wonderful summer evening, I said that this might superficially sound like what journalists call a man-bites-dog story. A book about the British side of the American Revolution wins the George Washington Book Prize <laughs> awarded at Mount Vernon. I hope it'll become clearer during this talk that there's no better way to appreciate the achievement of the patriots than through British eyes. I do want to thank my hosts, uh, besides Paul, uh, Graham Dozier and Nelson Langford for the arrangements they've made, but particularly uh, Fritz and Mary Will uh, who are largely responsible for me being here today and travel with me uh, in England uh, last summer. It's also a pleasure to be back among friends, a uh, number of people in the audience and on your board, uh, including Brent Halsey and Stuart Bryan, who worked with me at Monticello. And it's nice, too, to see uh, Betty Dalton, who I've known for many years. So it's a pleasure to be here. This was, of course, a war that the British should have won. Uh, they had won the, uh, what in this country is known as the French and Indian War, what in uh, Europe is called the Seven Years' War, in which they had really become the global power. They not only acquired Canada, and much of the Northwest, including the area that I used to work in, Wisconsin, but also islands in the Caribbean, including Martinique and Guadeloupe. Uh, they essentially took Cuba with the invasion of Havana, and they took Bengal in India, which really was to 
helped make them masters of that continent. They went on to win the major wars of the later 18th century, the French Revolutionary Wars. They defeated Napoleon. Many of the young officers from the American Revolution were senior commanders during the Napoleonic Wars. So the American Revolution seems like an aberration. And probably one of the most popular reasons as to why Britain failed is the idea that it was simply incompetent leadership, aristocratic buffoons, both in the politics and in the military. Uh, this idea, incidentally, is even more popular in Britain than it is in America. Uh, this is how they explained it to themselves, and they started this early when, a, when Britain's first consul came from uh, England, and he was introduced to George Washington, and he was very impressed, both by the height of Washington, but especially by his charisma, but he said, I think he'd have looked a lot less impressive if we'd sent better commanders against him. The image of aristocratic buffoons is most notable in the movies. And remember, movies influence people's historical ideas much more than books. Many more people have seen a film than have read any book on the American Revolution. I often show a film clip from The Patriot, and uh, people I know think that's a low dive because it was panned at the time, although I would argue it, it could have been one of the great movies of the American Revolution. But the figure there of Cornwallis is shown as being more concerned with his sartorial elegance and with his dogs than winning the war. And he's always in these magnificent headquarters that look like Drayton Hall in South Carolina. The real Cornwallis was a man who burnt all his baggage and his tents and equipment at Ramses Mill and doggedly pursued Nathaniel Green, who was admired by his uh, regular troops because he suffered the same sacrifices as they did. You see this image as well in, um, uh, in popular history. Barbara Tuckman, the first third of her book, The March of Folly, is uh, all about the ineptitude of British leadership, and you see it as well in college textbooks. My book consists of 10 interlinked biographical accounts of the key decision makers, both political and military, on the British side, which cumulatively tries to give another explanation of why Britain lost America. Uh, the people are introduced, and I'm going to introduce them in a moment, uh, rather like a play. They appear at the moment in which they become crucial to the action of the story. But I thought it would amuse you first if I just showed you the British and American cover of this book, because they're different. Now, you're looking now at the U.S. cover, and I'm very grateful to Yale because it's a lavishly produced book. Uh, 
They included color plates. Again, I said in Mount Vernon, I can't make claims as the author for the text, but I can confidently say that there is no book on the American Revolution with more red-colored illustrations. <laughs> now, the front cover of both the American and British edition has the same painting. It was one that I chose. It's by an American artist, John Singleton Copley, and it's actually uh, depicting the siege of Gibraltar, which was going on during, during the same period. I couldn't provide British paintings of the American Revolution because, guess what, they didn't paint them. <laughs> they were not interested in showing their defeats. So there's no wonderful set of John Trumbull paintings done by a British artist, and most people have seen the Trumbull paintings. And this, in many ways, highlighted one of my themes of the book, that this is a global war. But the original painting uh, will not be well known to most people because it left London in the middle of the Second World War to go to Gibraltar. It was there for 40 years, and it was then returned to the Guildhall Art Museum, which is not the first place that you're going to visit when you go to London. Uh, but it is a magnificent canvas. Uh, these figures are life-size. It's like a huge mural. And you are looking here at the U.S. edition uh, at really a detail from the painting. It appropriately shows the leaders. In many ways, it reaffirms uh, part of the stereotype that I'm actually writing against. It's the imperious British commander just pointing uh, arrogantly into the distance. And then, as some of my friends say when they look at this picture, it looks as though his junior commander is staring up and saying, what are you thinking? <laughs> and then uh, there's a sort of Christ-like figure in the bottom left-hand corner who's being crucified. Uh, they have my middle name, Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Jackson was my mother's maiden name, but my father was well aware what happened when you juxtapose the names because after the Second World War, he read as many young ex-servicemen read Arthur Schlesinger's Jr.'s biography of Jackson. It was not complicated by any talk of Indian removal, which he didn't mention, but he does present Jackson as the blunt-spoken Democrat, which my father liked. And also, even the subtitle is slightly different from the British subtitle. It's British leadership, and remember this, and it's the fate of the empire. So here is the British cover. <laughs> it's the same painting, but the camera has gone out. Uh, the Christ-like figure has disappeared. And instead of just two red coats, there's a whole rugby scrum <laughs> looking very victorious. My middle name is gone because the British publisher was worried that they'd think I was American. <laughs> and uh, the subtitle is different. Instead of British leadership, it's command, and that's a word that has a slightly different tone to it. And instead of the fate of the empire, it's the preservation of the empire. But the book presents 
these 10 key figures, instead of being blunderers and fools, as actually representing some of the best and the brightest, uh, certainly in terms of the military commanders who were sent over here. It was, of course, an aristocratic society, but Britain's aristocracy was particularly competitive because in Britain they had what was known as primogeniture, where only the oldest son inherited the wealth and the title. All of the younger sons had to go out and essentially establish themselves and their own families. The most prestigious, the most prestigious job, the most socially acceptable job was to join the army. The elite competed to be in the army or in the navy. It's difficult sometimes to comprehend today that this was regarded as far more preferable to a career in business, which was frowned upon for landed and aristocratic people, or a career in the law. Uh, the church was uh, acceptable, uh, but generally for the youngest and least intelligent son. <laughs> and of course, it was an established church to which everybody paid their taxes. Obviously, the first figure has to be George III, seen here in his red coat, because uh, he was essentially the head, just like a president of the United States, acted as head of the army, the, the figurehead of the military. Uh, George III really became quite fascinating to me, and the, one of the good things as I did the biographies, I, there were people I really had worked on for a long time and was interested in, uh, but some of the characters that I knew I would have to describe, I was less certain about as to uh, exactly how much they would uh, be consistent with what I uh, was increasingly thinking I was going to argue. George III was not the tyrant who uh, was the cause of the American Revolution. He was not responsible for most of the policies that led up to the American Revolution. Those were the policies of the Prime Minister and the government which were enacted in the name of the King. But George III became fascinating, and you can still keep him as your villain, <laughs> because George III, after the Boston Tea Party, became obsessed with America. He was one of the first to believe that coercion and force had to be used. He argued that if we behave like sheep, they will be lions. And he became the leading war hawk in England. I even argue that in many ways he prolonged the length of the war because he was so obsessed with it. And this painting, done at the height of the war, in which he almost became his own prime minister, he was dominating the man who acted as prime minister. This is a painting, in fact, ironically, by his favorite artist who was American, Benjamin West from Pennsylvania. Uh, at this point of the war, 1779, George III was writing, if others will not be active, I must drive. A historian in Britain writing immediately after the Second World War, as he read George III's letters, said, this man sounds like Churchill. 
I, he has all these incredible stalwart phrases. If any ten men will stand beside me, I intend to go on. He thought anyone an enemy of the country who could, would possibly speak out against this war and a traitor. He thought it was so important because he believed, and this was a belief even shared by the critics of the war, of which there were many in England, he believed that if Britain lost America, it would cease to be a great power. He was so obsessed that he twice wrote out his, essentially his resignation speech, which had never happened in Britain. But he was willing to step down from the throne rather than agree to uh, the British withdrawal from America. Lord North was the Prime Minister, seen here in the robes of the Chancellor of Oxford. And when I met uh, Fritz and Mary, uh, we were actually in the hall of the college that he attended with that painting in the uh, background. And it's actually the painting of Lord North in the robes of the Chancellor of Oxford. I've always said that the university should be uh, a sister university of the University of Virginia. They are both the home of the Cavaliers, <laughs> with the difference that Oxford was the headquarters of the Cavaliers during the English Civil War. And they are both the home, and the Oxford students boast this, of lost causes. <laughs> because North was chancellor of the university, and the university was very pro the government during the American Revolution. Now, Lord North was responsible for the policies that led to the revolution. He came, became prime minister in 1770. The day he made his first speech, uh, the Boston Massacre occurred. And so you could say he inherited a revolutionary situation. Ironically, he diffused the situation for about three years, which in American history textbooks are often called the years of peace or the period of calm. But he was responsible for the Tea Act. He was responsible for what in Britain are called the Coercive Acts, passed in the spring of 1774, and what in America are called the Intolerable Acts. He was responsible. But what interested me about Lord North was that as soon as he realized that America was united and that all of the colonies felt the same way as Massachusetts, and he realized about December, November or December of 1774, and he realized because he read the proceedings of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, he immediately tried to backtrack. He spent the entire war offering terms, attempting to negotiate, and essentially attempting to get out of this situation. His best terms were offered in 1778. They're known as the Carlisle Peace Commission, in which he offered America no taxes, a withdrawal of all legislation uh, passed since 1763, uh, the continuation of Congress, which was a big issue because up until that point, Britain refused to even recognize Congress or even use the word except to refer to it as an illegal assembly held in Philadelphia. Uh, those terms might be a lot more attractive today, 
uh, other than the fact that you would have 40 rotting battleships off the coast uh, as defense. What also intrigued me about North was that he constantly tried to resign. He was very aware that his name would be dragged through the mud. He didn't believe in the war uh, and attempted to resign. And George III prohibited him because the alternatives to Lord North were opposition leaders who were committed to withdraw from America from a very early stage. So North stayed on. Ironically, today, it's still the saying in Parliament that someone is the worst prime minister since Lord North. That's the, that's the nastiest thing you can say in the House of Commons. But he was not a bad prime minister. He was one of the most gifted speakers ever in the House of Commons. He uh, was opposed by some of the great parliamentarians of all time, Edmund Burke, Charles James Fox, William Pitt, both the younger and the elder. He was also a brilliant financier because the biggest concern in Britain at the time was the national debt. Today in the United States, 16% of our tax revenue pays the interest on our debt. In Britain, in the 1770s, it was closer to 50%, and at times it had been over 50%. Banking, paper currencies, these were all new innovations. Uh, people were suspicious of them. Jefferson, in the 1790s, was still suspicious of them. There was a fear that the country could simply capsize at any time. The irony of Lord North is he disagreed with the war, but he was a brilliant financier and managed to make it possible for Britain to continue to fight the war and to end it with an even bigger national debt than the debt that they'd had after the Seven Years' War when they decided to tax America as a way to alleviate that uh, debt. Remember, France went bankrupt as a result of its role in the American Revolution, and that led directly to the French Revolution. And you could say that the French, in some ways, were the real losers from this war. One of the chapters has two people, and that is Sir William Howe, the commander-in-chief of the first half of the war. He succeeded just after Bunker Hill and remained uh, army commander until 1778. And then his brother, an admiral, Lord Richard Howe, and he insisted that if he was going to serve, his brother must serve with him as head of the Navy so that there would be perfect coordination between the army and Navy. Now, that all sounds like nepotism. Until I tell you that Sir William Howe was chosen over 110 more senior generals to command in this war. He was actually one of the most junior generals in the British Army. There were only uh, six more junior to him, and two of those would later serve in prominent roles, John Burgoyne and Henry Clinton. He was chosen precisely because he knew America, he'd fought in America, He'd been at one of the, what is still in England considered, one of the great moments of British military history, uh, the Battle of Abraham Plains, in which the British took Quebec. Uh, Howe was a great friend of General James Wolfe and is one of the figures depicted around him uh, mourning the death of his commander. 
Howe was an expert in light infantry. These were really going to be shock troops, uh, really the equivalent of modern-day commandos, and who they knew would be effective in an unconventional war. The British knew that this was going to be different uh, from regular pitched battles in Europe. Now, his brother was certainly appointed uh, by means of patronage um, and was not the first choice of the government, but his brother, better than anyone, illustrates how thin the margin is between success and failure because his brother later went on to be one of Britain's leading naval heroes before Nelson. Uh, he won a battle called the Glorious First of June during the French Revolutionary Wars. His brother really wrote the book on amphibious warfare in Britain. That's where the army and navy are used together. He suddenly uh, commissioned and possibly even designed flat-bottom craft whose bow would go forward like a gangplank and troops would be able to rush off. And these two brothers landed um, 6,500 men on Staten Island in a three-hour period during July of uh, 1776, along with 40 cannon. This was unheard of. And this was going to be Britain's great advantage. Most of America's population uh, in the 13 colonies was along the eastern seaboard and generally uh, within about 50 miles of the coast. And the army with the navy could attack at any point, at any time. John Burgoyne was a junior general the man who was defeated uh, at uh, the Battle of Saratoga, which many regard as the turning point of the war. He was not a commander-in-chief. William Howe never lost a single battle. He defeated Washington every time he encountered him, whether it was Brandywine, Germantown, Long Island, White Plains. Howe was triumphant. Not John Burgoyne. But Burgoyne was the rising star in the British Army until this war. This painting, which is in the Frick Collection of New York, was commissioned by his commander, who commissioned it out of admiration for Burgoyne, because Burgoyne had essentially defended Portugal against an attempted invasion by Spain. Lord George Germain was the minister most responsible for the war in London. Uh, he oversaw all the operations, the correspondence with the uh, uh, generals and the admirals. There is only one biography of Germain, and the biographer begins by saying, I detest this man. <laughs> and that, that is very rare in biographies. This, incidentally, is a place, the house in the background, which Fritz and Mary visited uh, with me. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that the owner of that house, which has never been sold or leased in a thousand years, was with me in college. And I asked him, uh, I thought he had a famous ancestor, and he said, my ancestor was the man who lost America. And I was a history student at the time, and I'd never heard of him. 
which embarrassed me, but I came to have a great appreciation of him as really a veteran administrator who managed to get 35,000 men out to America in the summer of 1776. He sent over more troops than either the commander in the north, Guy Carlton, or William Howe had requested the only time that happened during the war, and used the entire British merchant navy to do it. The, uh, and they had to come not only from England, but from Germany, the famous uh, mercenaries, Hessians as they're often known, but they came from many different states and from Ireland. Uh, and the conditions were so crammed that one German described in his journal how if you wanted to turn in the night, you'd make a shout and the entire uh, garrison would, uh, would turn over in the night. Sir Henry Clinton, the British commander-in-chief who succeeded William Howe uh, and commanded until essentially a few months after Yorktown, what we can really regard as the end of the war. He is also the subject of one biography. It's much better, and it indeed uh, won the Bancroft Prize, which is the biggest prize given by the American Historical Association in the early 1960s. But it was written at the height of the popularity of psychohistory. And so we're treated to the idea that uh, Clinton had a distant father, a uh, difficult relationship with an over-domineering uh, mother, and that this created uh, an anxiety-prone personality. And it's certainly true that he was anxiety-prone. This is a man who burst into tears when a young officer came into his, uh, into his room early after his appointment as commander-in-chief, and he remained in tears, and he pointed at the sentry at the door and said, I would rather be that man than in my position. I'd rather be just standing guard. Uh, this is a man who obsessed about the war afterwards, who wrote the longest memoir of any general on either side, and who wrote volumes of notes on the war. But I call him the most cerebral and the most thoughtful of all commanders. Uh, this is a man who coins the phrase, we need to win the hearts and minds of America. He understood that ultimately this was about civilian support, and that's what differentiated it from wars in Europe. It was not just a battle and a military exercise. It was also a political war to win support. He put great emphasis on the need for what he called solid campaigns, not cut and run. But you had to not only uh, take territory, but keep it and support the loyalist troops. He did not believe that those Americans who supported Britain could simply be left to themselves. They had to have the support of the conventional army. And if you left them stranded, uh, you would cease to uh, have any military support. Yes, he was an anxious man, but as the old psychology joke went, he had much to be anxious about because here was a man expected to win the war with fewer troops, less naval support than the Howe brothers at a time when Britain was fighting France and then Spain and then Holland in a world 
war in which more troops were being sent to the Caribbean than to North America. Earl Cornwallis is the name that you're most familiar with. He again illustrates that there's a thin line between success and failure. He actually went on to have the most successful career of all of them because he was so young. And uh, he became Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. He suppressed the Irish rebellion. And he later uh, was twice Governor General of India in which he commanded armies that were larger than any army he'd commanded in America. And he played a major role in the British expansion into southern India. I said uh, that he was a very serious army officer who burned his equipment at Ramses Mill. He said, the army is my love. He joined in the early teens, like a lot of these uh, commanders. And he was actually, although he was the most aristocratic of the commanders, he was the least pretentious. He hated pomp, uh, utterly different from the figure in the Patriot. Um, when he was in Ireland, he refused to have guards. He refused to live in Dublin Castle. And he was very nearly assassinated in Phoenix Park. And the last two of the ten figures, Sir George Rodney, the person, the admiral, you might least expect to find in this book, because instead of emerging with his reputation ruined, his reputation was actually enhanced by this war. He, during this war, captured or killed three enemy admirals from three different countries. He killed the Dutch admiral, and he captured the French admiral, de Grasse, the very admiral who had played such a key role here at the Battle of the Chesapeake Capes, and in keeping Cornwallis cornered at Yorktown, uh, he himself was captured and defeated by Rodney in, uh, a few months later, on April the 12th, 1782, in a battle called the Battle of the Saints. And that's why this story is not just a story of defeat. It's also a story of how Britain, led by the same men who lost America, emerged relatively victorious in uh, its battle outside. Indeed, I'm going to call it, if there were ever a, a Canadian publication, The Men Who Won Canada. <laughs> and finally, finally, there is Lord Sandwich. And you, you may not have heard of Sandwich, but you have, because every time you have a snack at lunchtime, you commemorate uh, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, who liked to live hard and play hard. Uh, so whether he's gambling or working late in his office, he'd put meat between two pieces of bread. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty. This was the only war in the 18th century where the British Navy was outnumbered. In every other war, Britain had what it tried to... Uh, what it aimed to have, which was a two-power navy, a, a navy that could defeat France and Spain at the same time. That was not true in the American War. And really, virtually Britain's only naval defeat of the 18th century was in the Chesapeake Bay. And naturally, Sandwich is blamed, but he shouldn't be, because this man had been in the government overseeing the navy before many of the others were born, uh, he warned the government before a shot had been fired at Lexington and Concord that they must fully mobilize the Navy 
immediately because there would be a foreign war and not just a revolution and that in every other war Britain had always been caught unprepared that it took a long time to mobilize the navy to bring ships out of dry dock to start building new ships instead of getting his request the uh, navy budget was actually cut because Lord North did not want to frighten the French and he did not want to encourage them but the French had long been mobilizing and so had the Spanish because they'd been so humiliated during the French and Indian War. Sandwich was much more concerned with the protection of England and the war in Europe than the war in America. Uh, for three summers from 1778 to 1781 Britain had to brace itself against attempted invasions by France and Spain. One of them in 1778 was going to be led by uh, uh, General Rochambeau, the commander who later came to command the French forces here and was at Yorktown, and his deputy was the Marquis de Lafayette. Uh, those were the most serious attempts made to invade Britain since the Spanish Armada. So that is the group. I present them as, in fact, some of the best and the brightest. The British consul was wrong. Britain did send its best commanders over. They failed. And I'm going in about two minutes to give you my uh, postage stamp version of actually why Britain did fail. Uh, and th this is always an error to be, uh, to be too general. There were, of course, many reasons. But since this really was a war of hearts and minds, the major problem for Britain is that they had an army of conquest, not an army of occupation. They had enough troops that they were able to take every American city at some point of the war. But whenever they tried to take territory, their presence imploded. They did so in New Jersey in 1776-7, Pennsylvania in 77, and you see it most clearly here in the South in 1780 and 81. The British took Charleston, the biggest city in the South. They defeated the Continental Army under Cornwallis at Camden with Horatio Gates, who'd been the victorious commander at Saratoga, taking 5,000 American troops. There was virtually no army left in the South until weeks before Yorktown. And yet, the British still could not take territory. They faced insurgents, people who today are folk heroes, like Thomas Sumter, the Gamecocks, and Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. Uh, they had to spread their garrisons out. Their supply lines got cut. And uh, they, they found their progress constantly impeded. The real error that the British made was that they'd assumed all along that the majority of Americans supported them. This was not incompetence. The information they were receiving constantly encouraged them to believe that they would find support in the country. And this was coming from Americans. But it was from those Americans who supported Britain, who we call loyalists and sometimes derogatorily Tories. Uh, they encouraged the idea that the majority of the population supported Britain. And the problem in a revolution, and this is, tends to be true of all revolutions, is they're also 
civil wars. They typically simply descend into anarchy, which is what you're seeing in some of the uh, uh, Arab Spring revolts currently. And it's very difficult to read the ground. To, I mean, you, there were no opinion polls in this period, but even now, it's very difficult to read what the population is thinking. 19,000 Americans fought for the British. The men commanded by Bannister Talton, who are featured in the Patriot movie, all of those were American, so that when Charlottesville was attacked and Monticello occupied, uh, there was basically one British officer there. At the Battle of the King's Mountain, there was only one British officer, and he was Scottish, Major Patrick Ferguson commanding. Everyone else in that battle was American. You could say that some of the most vicious fighting, and this is always true of civil wars, was American against American. Because they couldn't occupy territory, they had to supply the army from Britain. And this was the most impossible logistical exercise for uh, a what was still virtually a medieval administrative system in England of getting 3,500 tons of food out to the army every day. And uh, the very presence of the army alienated American support. However, Americans were divided at the beginning of the war, the opposition grew so that by the time Cornwallis got to North Carolina, he couldn't even get basic intelligence about the roads and the rivers. And otherwise, he may have been able to beat Nathaniel Green in what's famously known as the race to the Dan. There were many other reasons. There was budget and the limitations of the British spending on the war. Manpower, which was why the British had to encourage slaves to join their side, which alienated opinion in the South, uh, why they used Native Americans, why they used German mercenaries. But ultimately, they were never totally defeated. After Yorktown, the British still had uh, New York with their main army, they still had Canada, they still had uh, Charleston, Savannah, St. Augustine, and East Florida. What had changed in England was opinion, and especially opinion in the House of Commons. The government could no longer maintain majorities, so that by March of 1782, Lord North finally did resign and was replaced by opposition leaders committed to the withdrawal from America. As I said, they were not total failures. They did succeed. By the end of George III's reign, the British Empire was the largest empire the world has ever known, larger than the Roman Empire. It encompassed a fifth of the world population. However, historians always say nothing is inevitable. I argue that the chances of a British victory were much more slight than you might traditionally have thought. It's much easier to explain why the British failed, but this was still a war that America might have lost, uh, especially at the end of 1775 uh, when Washington's army had been reduced to 2,000 men and Washington did the famous crossing of the Delaware and attacked Trenton. It was the stuff of a real movie 
uh, almost unbelievable. And when Lord George Germain heard about that, he said they're desperate. And he was right. But that kept the morale of the cause going, and it destroyed the British presence in New Jersey, because after that winter, they lost about a third of their army just in foraging campaigns and small-scale events that we never read about, and they were pushed back to New York. Washington's leadership was critical. Uh, it's very difficult to think of another commander who could have been so effective, especially when you look at the people who were considered as alternatives. And all of the stories we grow up with in this country, the sharp fire, uh, the precision of the riflemen, the effectiveness of the militia, but also the Continental Army was critical. The very British who at the beginning of the war had said that these people would be cowards, that they'd run away at the shot of the first gun. These same officers, at their words, and in my conclusion, I quote the very people and what they'd said earlier and what they said later, that this army was as disciplined, as effective as any army in Europe. Thank you very much. to draw about Vietnam, mm -hmm. but uh, Lord Germain had, uh, had written some memoirs and autobiographical notes. Did others in your group uh, do that and where they rethought or revisited the war? It was Clinton who wrote the autobiography, and that was not published until 1954. Uh, and in it, he said, everyone needs to think about America because you're going to be fighting another war there and that this country is going to expand across the continent, it's going to expand into Canada, and he claimed the Caribbean and South uh, America. Uh, the others did not reflect on it. In fact, um, uh, Horace Walpole, who I quote a lot because he's a very quotable memoirist of this period, uh, said he was appalled that the same public who'd been thirsting for war in the opening stages just wanted to forget about it and go back to frivolity afterwards. Uh, it is amazing how quickly people didn't, and people like Cornwallis very shrewdly for their own careers avoided uh, discussion of it. During this war, hmm. there were many British people who were lost. But what I've never found is where are they buried in this country? Did they remove the bodies? I mean, you really don't find British cemeteries, British stones, or markers, or anything about them. That, that's an interesting question. They did bury them, but they didn't put markers because they feared that the graves would be desecrated. And uh, I was recently talking at the Battle of Guildford Courthouse and was amazed that the people who run that site were contemplating putting up a marker to the British war dead, uh, which is almost unheard of to put a marker up to the enemy dead. I, mean, I thought it was an amazing expression of warmth uh, 
and shows how very different the relationship is between the two countries. I actually got to write this uh, book on the Monticello estate in an office which Franklin used, Roosevelt used in the four days leading up to D-Day. And he wrote the only words that he spoke on D-Day, known as the D-Day prayer. And it was lovely because it represented a very different moment of Anglo-American relations. One of the reasons my parents and so many people in Britain feel the way they do about America is that, ironically, the United States defended their liberties. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned uh, 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 the rifle in the uh, uh, revolution uh, and Ferguson, Major Ferguson. Uh, did he use a rifleman and did, uh, did Washington uh, not uh, say at one time that he, he didn't uh, like to use riflemen? That, that is absolutely correct. Uh, in fact, Ferguson not only used riflemen, he designed a rifle, a repeat-loading rifle. And there were riflemen on the British side. The best were the German Jaegers. Uh, but they w there were not nearly as many of them. And what really struck them about the American riflemen, a lot of them were from out west. I mean, Daniel Morgan is the great one, the, the Virginia Association. Uh, that because they'd been involved with Indian warfare and hunting, they were particularly accurate. But it was not the magic weapon that you might imagine because it took so long to load and aim. And the British had their own secret weapon, what they thought would always win, which was their bayonets. So instead of just marching in line, and there's an excellent new book about this with guns and bayonets only by Matthew Spring, they didn't have these, they didn't just march like automatons and fire at intervals. They would fire once and then they'd run at the Patriots with their bayonets attached. And only a very seasoned army could stand up to that. As late as Guildford Courthouse, when they used that tactic, and some of the best British regiments faced the North Carolina and Virginia militia, that militia was not able to stand up to that attack. And that, that nearly always happened. Militia were effective in policing areas, keeping out Tories, and you know, disrupting British supply lines. But ultimately, they couldn't really have won the war. It needed a, an army. And what Washington created, especially with Steuben's training at Valley Forge, uh, was an army that could stand up to uh, the Bennett attack just as well as the British army. And Morgan actually used the weakness of the militia to his strength at Cowpens. He deliberately put the militia at the front, Bannister Tarleton, looked at the, uh, you know, the site, thought it was one of the best opportunities ever. Uh, he just ordered his bayonets and cavalry. Uh, and the militia did exactly what they were supposed to do to run. But behind them was uh, the Continental Army lines. And they stood. And for the, one of the first times in the war, it was the British who were seen running. And Tarleton himself was nearly killed, and certainly some of the best of the British infantry with Cornwallis was lost at Cowpens. Marvelous, yes, hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Rochambeau. Yes. What if uh, Washington didn't listen to Rochambeau when he wanted to attack the British in New York? Yes. Rochambeau said, I, I can't defeat the British in New York. Uh, Washington had always believed, as had Clinton, that the mother of all battles would be in New York. It was actually not even Rochambeau who suggested going down to Yorktown. It was de Grasse. And de Grasse, when he was in the Caribbean, took on Virginia pilots, you know, basically sailors who knew the waterways of the Chesapeake. And he had orders not to be in America very long. The French were never that interested in America. They were quite happy for the revolution to keep distracting the British while they whittled the British down in the Caribbean where they took over seven British islands. And uh, he had orders just to go for a short time. He should be much more the hero of this story because he took an enormous risk. He left no French ships in the Caribbean. He sent no French ships with their convoy home he brought his entire fleet to Yorktown so that the commanders were surprised. They'd been assured that there would be a superior British fleet off the coast of North America. If that had been the case, uh, Cornwallis's army could just have been ferried back to New York. But even after Yorktown, Washington thought the battle would be in New York. Washington was really worried that the troops would get complacent. He believed the British were going to have to be completely decimated. He'd never anticipated that opinion had so changed in Britain that they were just going to give up. And Washington actually twi tried twice in New York. Like Clinton, he's often accused of uh, having just sat there doing nothing uh, in 1779 and 1780. In actual fact, he wanted to do major attacks on New York, and it was the French Navy that let him down. Hello. It is my belief that uh, Gates, um, General Gates was more of a politician hmm. and that it really was Benedict Arnold who won up the, uh, Saratoga. Saratoga. Well, a lot uh, of people <laughs> believe that. And when, and when he came yes. down here, uh, it was not, you know, nobody was surprised at hmm. uh, what happened. In fact, I understand some. Behind his back, he was known as Granny Gates. <laughs> um, there's, there's no question that Benedict Arnold, up until his defection, was one of the greatest commanders on the American side. And Clinton believed in orchestrating his defection that it would lead to a general defection in the American army. Remember, a lot of people were uh, disillusioned by the support they'd, they'd received from Congress. A lot of soldiers were unpaid. The biggest mutiny in the American army nearly occurred after Yorktown, where the office of the Continental Army got together in Newburgh and was essentially ready to march on Philadelphia and the Continental Congress. Um, so the British misinterpreted, though, that dissolution for the possibility of active support for the British. As regard Gates, I would defend him uh, that uh, although I have to tell you he was a British army officer um, but uh, Gates actually set up the general strategy at uh, Saratoga and uh, Arnold had wanted him to engage the British much more quickly instead he just allowed them to keep being drawn while his own force was getting larger 
and largely by the moment. Burgoyne complained afterwards. He said, you know, when I came into New York, I outnumbered the Continental Army two to one. By the time uh, I got to uh, Saratoga, I was outnumbered four to one. People appeared from nowhere, from New Hampshire, uh, you know, which is not really uh, a Maine, places that hardly existed uh, and that were thought to be depopulated. Um, he said that the Americans were like the many-headed hydra. Once you cut off one head, another appears. <laughs> and it's popular, it's popular in academic history now to emphasize the number of neutrals, the number of loyalists, and almost to suggest that this was a minority uh, who were interested in independence, just as the British were claiming. But if you look at the ground evidence, whenever push came to shove, the people were there. But civilians generally didn't fight in war. So when we say they were neutral, that can be misleading. They didn't get involved, but they often would get involved and leave their farms and their livelihoods um, in times of crisis. Excellent program, Andrew. Thank you. I'm curious. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I read that when King George III was crowned in Westminster Abbey, when he got ready to put the crown in his head, one of the large stones fell out. It was a bad omen. Mm. And years later, they said that represented the United States. He lost it. Can you? <laughs> I'm just curious. Is any truth to this? Thank you. Uh, it is true. One of the jewels fell out of his crown, and it was later regarded as ominous. I should tell you another story. Uh, he was with Benjamin West, his American artist, his favorite, after the war. And um, he uh, was told by West that Washington had simply resigned his commission, said goodbye to his officers at the Francis Tavern. And he said, if that's true, he is indeed a very great man. And I want, incidentally, to thank the Society for Colonial Wars for sponsoring this uh, today. I think once you know the British side, you're going to celebrate those fireworks all the more on the 4th of July. Thank you.